Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian. My name is Eric. My name is Justin. And we are welcoming you back to our second to last episode of Fly on the Wall for the semester. Sad. Uh, I was going to say really <laughs> exciting because uh, you guys get a break from all of this, which is exactly what you want. Uh, but never fear, uh, we'll be back better than ever in the spring. But for now, let's move on. Uh, to our guest for this week, her name is Marie Harp. She was a fellow here at Georgetown uh, this fall semester, and she is a foreign affairs uh, wizard. Uh, it's like the best way to describe her it. Her official title is foreign affairs wizard. <laughs> yes, under the White House wizardry yeah. department. <laughs> um, she's fantastic at turning foreign policy affairs into like digestible uh, pieces of news, dig- digestible messages. Um, and explaining things uh, and, and in a way that is accessible for people who weren't in the room like she was. So as always, follow us on social media at fly on the wall pod, subscribe on iTunes on um, to our link to get uh, our weekly emails. Um, all of that fun stuff. We love to hear from you, especially as we start prep for season three next semester in the spring. We want to hear who you want as guests um, any feedback, all that fun stuff. Um, but let's get into our first segment, which is our tweet of the week, which is a fun one this week, uh, which comes from the Twitter account AP Oddities, which is an Associated Press odd news account. Good for them. Um, and it says winning without running Montana man elected to the city council with three write in votes. Three That's insane. If you ever think that your vote doesn't count, talk to this Montana man that is apparently some city council member now. That's crazy. Sometimes I think, you know, what if the uh, the Gusa election was decided by just three votes, you know, like to put it in perspective, like who would have thought? Yeah, you're right. I would. There are actually a lot of people who vote in the Gusa election, but that's a separate issue. I mean, there's just like not a lot of people on this campus, though. So I think I wouldn't be too surprised. If you that makes sense. It's like, a smaller okay, pool. If everyone wrote in themselves. <clears throat> like Florida. I mean, in 2000, that was 537 votes. Actually, uh, last night, we're recording on Wednesday, sorry. Um, last night, this past Tuesday, there was the Atlanta mayor race, which was decided by like 736 votes. Get out and vote, people. That's the TLDR <laughs> of today. Uh, cool. Gear grinding topic. Aaron, what grinds your gears today? Uh, well, there are a bunch of things that grinds our gears. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to toss a couple topics out there, and we're going to seize on the one that is best. I like it. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to do this diplomatically today. So the first is treaties, the concept of... Uh, you know, putting aside past differences and and working together for the greater good. Um, <laughs> the next one is uh, the concept of not being nuked. It's an important one. Very important. <laughs> um, and we discuss uh, how not to get nuked in today's episode with Marie. Um, and the last one is secrets. So a lot of what uh, Marie was working on, uh, she was involved in the Osama bin Laden raid, uh, also the Iran nuclear negotiations. Uh, had to be done covertly uh, and negotiated uh, in the backest of back rooms and uh, totally kept under wraps. So there you go. Treaties, not being nuked, and secrets. Which one do we want to grind about today? Go for it. Take whatever your heart tells you. Christian, do you have a vote? Okay, yeah, I'll start. Um, I mean, I'm going to start and jump on not being nuked here um, because I feel like it is probably the most pertinent to our conversation with Marie. Um, and we'll get into the last half of our episode with her, and it really is just a conversation of who is going to nuke us first, um, if anyone. But I think just, like, the concept of nuclear deterrence is always really interesting, um, and I think the craziest thing that people, like, learn when they kind of study the history of 
uh, I mean, nuclear arm, the nuclear arms race and nuclear deterrence is how close we've been in history to like accidentally all blowing ourselves up. Like there are three or four instances where like someone had their hand on the red button essentially, or was about to turn the key or I don't know how this works. I've never <laughs> tried to nuke someone. We watch the movies though. <laughs> <laughs> we do watch the movies. Um, but like how many times it's been so close to someone turning the key or, you know, pressing the red button and then at the last second, not doing it. There's a really interesting story of this guy um, who uh, in the Soviet Union, like, you know, they accidentally ran like a training uh, and like they put in like the, I guess, like the training tape uh, that simulated, you know, a full scale attack from the United States. And he like was the guy who had to make the decision and he almost did it and then decided that like it didn't seem credible enough. And he basically like saved us from getting nuked back in the 80s. There's a cool documentary about him that I'm forgetting the name of. But it's just crazy to me, like, how close we are at any given point to just, like, total annihilation. Cool. Um, something <laughs> I want to... Yeah, not cool, though. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> cool, but not cool. Um, so, what grinds my gears, I'm going to take the secrets topic. Um, because Marie talks a lot about that when we talk about, like, her role in the Bin Laden raid and how that played out and all that kind of stuff. Um, which was the, like, utmost of secretive processes, obviously, um, for, like, very clear reasons, I assume. Um, but what grinds my gears about that is like, it's hard now to recognize like what are very obviously like important processes to keep secret things like the Bin Laden raid, like you don't want that getting out even not just to the public, but just like out to like the wrong person who could leak it here or there or something like that and screw up an entire like almost decade long operation. Um, but juxtaposing that with like the public's demand for like accountability and transparency with our government. And you see it a lot, like used as almost a partisan tactic, like, oh, like he or she wasn't like open about like what's been going on. And it always comes out in like the worst of ways through like either leaks or news stories or like big headlines. And it, you know, sounds more like a cover up when a lot of times the reason things are kept secret is not because they're hiding something that they're doing wrong, but because they're hiding something that like is very, very sensitive. Um, and secrets is usually like gives all kinds of like inclinations about like spies and like cover-ups and all that's kind of like bad stuff um when a lot of times it's like very very closely guarded important national security secrets you could ask you just use security as a adjective to probably i like that sounds uh, right to me so i have the opportunity to respond to both of you so i'm going to so starting with justin i want to point to that you make some great points but i just want to sort of extend on that pointing to something that uh your best friend patrick murphy actually said mm -hmm. on the first episode of this podcast this season uh, and he was talking about how sometimes committee sessions should be uh, conducted in private right. because sometimes there is an inclination among uh, members of Congress to amp up the theatrics when they know that something is being televised or they know that no. <laughs> crazy, right? Almost like soccer players. Uh, <laughs> so, the, yeah, there's a tendency for, for members of Congress to sort of play up, you know, conflict rather than actually seek compromise even just because that doesn't play as well politically and doesn't get as much news coverage so that's my response to that so yeah sometimes secrets uh although optically not ideal sometimes are the best way to get things done and respond to christian's point i actually this is hilarious just came across an article on politico uh, that i sat down and started reading just before we started recording this podcast and it's called the deep state is real Oh, no. And uh, oh. this is what gives me confidence that we're not going to get nuked anytime soon. And it is because we are insulated by a bureaucracy and um, competent, intelligent members of that bureaucracy 
uh, in terms of statecraft, in terms of national security, in terms of the military, in terms of uh, the State Department, uh, all of which um, have the ability to keep us afloat and keep things stable, even though uh, our leadership sometimes seems volatile, especially changing year after year and policies change, administrations change, messages change, uh, stances change publicly. It's somewhat comforting to know that there is some consistency there and that there are ways to stabilize the American political apparatus, uh, even though we have such fluid government. I'd still feel more comfortable if you had like a Death Star floating around out there to just like zap down nukes. You, that is on its way. Yeah. Can you tell it's almost Star Wars week? It is almost <laughs> Star Wars week. We'll be coming right at back. you. We'll be coming at you live from the premiere. <laughs> Maybe we'll Facebook live it. There you go. Great. So let's uh, move on to what's next. What's next is our interview with Marie. So a little bit more about her. She's had a bunch of different experiences in the national security field, including her stint at the CIA which she was uh, a spokesman, also at the State Department, where she worked as a spokesman for the department, but also a senior advisor for uh, John Kerry as soon as he was named secretary of the State Department. And finally, she also had experience in that Obama 2012 campaign as a national security advisor. So she advised Obama, President Obama running for re-election on national security issues, foreign policy issues, talking points. She was actually in Camp David for debate prep, which is fascinating. Something we didn't get to talk to her about on the podcast, but just what a great experience. Someone who's been around the block and knows how it knows, A, how policy is conducted in terms of international relations, but B, knows how to communicate that to the broader public, which is something that definitely shines through in this episode. Yeah. And if you were at any of her discussion groups here on campus throughout the semester, you know that she's like Aaron said, a wizard on this stuff. So we're excited for you to listen to our interview with her. Very Hark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're very excited to, to have you on. Now, you offer a, a very special uh, intersection of politics that we haven't really had before. You are offering us some foreign policy uh, chops. We don't really have foreign policy experts on our podcast very frequently. And full disclosure, we're both college government students, so we don't really have the SFS expertise to, to keep up with you, but we can't wait to hear some of the stories that you're going to tell. Well, I'm very excited. I think that one of the reasons I wanted to come to GU politics was a lot of people who study politics don't think foreign policy matters to voters. And a lot of people who uh, study, you know, voting behavior don't think they need to pay attention to what happens overseas. And I think that's not true. And so that's why I wanted to come here. Great. Well, I'll jump in with the first question. So uh, we're just going to get right into your experience because you have some great, really amazing stories (laughs) to tell. and We can't wait to get them out. Uh, So First, uh, your first real foray into um, being a, a foreign policy expert was uh, being the spokesperson at the CIA, right? And one of your first experiences um, at the CIA uh, was when there were a bunch of CIA agents in Afghanistan who mm-hmm. were killed by a, a double agent. And in that position, you had the job of explaining violence in a very complex international conflict in a way that was digestible to the public, in a way that made sense. Walk us through how you managed to, to respond to that tragedy. What was going through your mind? Well, it's hard at the agency, at the CIA, because so much of what we do isn't public. And it's a much smaller agency than a place like the Pentagon or the State Department. It feels much more like a family. And so this was the most agency officers that had been killed since Beirut, since the mm-hmm. bombing in Beirut. This just doesn't happen. We're not used to dealing with this kind of tragedy in a way, unfortunately, like the Pentagon the Pentagon is, for example, because they're used to deploying to wars. We serve on the front lines, but 
but don't often have to deal with these kinds of situations. Right. It was New Year's Eve. So that was, you know, it was a holiday. We started getting reports in from Afghanistan and, you know, the news comes slowly. And in the press office where I worked, what you do at a secret intelligence agency is take what's happening and figure out what we can and should say publicly. And part of the challenge with social media today and doing press in national security is we were pretty sure that the terrorist organization, whoever was behind it, it turned out to be Al-Qaeda, would put out something about it at some point on Twitter, on Facebook. And so we couldn't pretend like it didn't happen. We couldn't not say anything. We had to have a plan. Obviously, you start with notification of families and then figure out what your posture should be going forward, um, which is a really hard thing to do. And it's a very sensitive subject. When you're dealing with this level of tragedy, you have so many things to take into account. First of all, the families, and then everything flows from that. So how do you, I mean, in this situation, uh, it can seem easy for things to spiral out of control. So how do you keep it together? How do you make sure that um, this process, I guess, runs as smoothly and respectfully as possible? Well, it's a key question because when things are happening very fast, when news is breaking, it's easy for things to get out of control because your phone is ringing off the hook. You have reporters emailing you, you know, lighting up your phone. You, you have to take a breath because first information is often wrong, particularly from war zones. And because of the sensitivity and just because of the importance of the subject, as you put information out, you have to be very cognizant to do it in a responsible way. The other issue is that many of these officers were undercover. And so we made a decision because of the public interest and the news you know, uh, focus on it that we would declassify all of their names eventually. But we, you know, there's another layer of complexity. It's not just seven you know, folks that are, that are killed. It's their names are classified. And why was that decision made to declassify? So every year in May, there's a memorial event at the CIA to honor those agency officers who have been killed in the line of duty. If you look at pictures of CIA headquarters, there's a memorial wall. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's had some controversy this year when President Trump made some remarks in front of yeah, it. That I remember that. A lot of people thought were a little too partisan for the location. But there's a star for every member that has died in the line of duty. And below it, there's a book. And there's every star is listed. And those whose names can be listed are, are put in there. And many have no names next to them. For us, a lot of the families actually wanted to be able to talk about their deceased loved ones. They wanted to be able publicly to talk about it. It's just hard, quite frankly, today with social media. Um, people's family and friend, friends knew. And so it's a harder thing um, and we thought it was important to honor them publicly. And doing so meant talking about who they were, about the role they played. And we thought that was very important to us to be able to do. Great. So moving ahead a little bit, um, you actually were also there for uh, the lead up to the Osama bin Laden mm-hmm. raid. Um, first off, uh, we've been dying to ask you this. Yes, we have. Um, this first, is the good, like the good half. You know, the last one was the, probably my worst day at the agency. And this is was probably the best. So talk to us about the lead up to the raid mm-hmm. first. I mean, it, it seems, I mean, this was obviously a well-kept secret. Um, 
in the, fact. The best secret in DC. <laughs> right. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about, you know, how much information, I guess, was going around the agency. How much, I guess, um, prep you had for this situation? Um, and what was that prep like? Well, very little. I mean, this probably was the closest kept secret, I think, in the U.S. government, certainly in the Obama administration, I would venture to guess that's not an overstatement. And the folks at the agency, you know, the job in the press shop was to plan for a number of different contingencies. He's, you know, he's there, but he's captured. He's there, but he's killed. Uh, he's not there. <laughs> he's there and he's captured or killed, but there are U.S. soldier casualties. Special Forces casualties, right? So there are all these different contingencies. And we knew that given the enormity of the press uh, impact this would have, that we had to be prepared. And so this is such a very DC inside baseball thing, but might be interesting to your listeners. Um, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which is the annual nerd prom, they call it, um, the annual DC event where Everybody gets dressed up. The president used to until this year goes and makes funny remarks. That was scheduled for Saturday night. And initially, the raid was also scheduled for Saturday night. And so every there were all these, this is such a stupid conversation to have to have. But publicly, <laughs> if Barack Obama and Leon Panetta and the Secretary of Defense and all these people didn't show up, everybody would know something was up, which would hurt operational security. Now, because of weather issues, it ends up getting pushed back 24 hours. But we literally had conversations. Do we still go to the correspondence dinner? Which seems insane. But you have to think about everything. Because if all these people hadn't shown up, people would have noticed something was up. Can we get a, a rough timeline? So when was this conversation sort of happening? So, I mean, I wasn't brought into the conversations until pretty late in the process. Um, again, for secrecy's sure. sake. Um, but a lot of this work was happening in the weeks, couple weeks leading up to it. So, so he, had he already committed to going to the dinner? Like, would he have had to pull back? Absolutely. I mean, the wow. President Obama, the president normally goes every year right. and sits on stage and speaks. Now, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but you can imagine if Barack Obama canceled and the CIA director canceled and the Secretary of Defense canceled. And you would think, so reporters are smart. Mm -hmm. Terrorists are also sometimes smart. We couldn't let that hamper the plan now again it turned out it was it was the next night but the president um, was presented with an intelligence case based mostly on cia's analysis there was no smoking gun as there often isn't and so in addition to having contingencies ready we had to decide how much of that intelligence case to release publicly because people were obviously going to be very curious in how we found him after so many years and so we put together a document that could be declassified and released, which is basically what ended up ended up happening. The day of the raid, that Sunday, we all came in. We brought sleeping bags, pillows. We knew we were going to be there, probably sleeping on the floor of our office. They brought in inflatable beds for us. Wow. Um, and that afternoon when the when the raid was happening, Leon Panetta and the senior team were in our operations center. We were back in the office. I have a photo of when we got the phone call and I'm like giving this like awkward, weird smile and thumbs up. Um, and then the decision was, how do we make it public? And going back to the last conversation, we, a helicopter had crashed and been blown up. People were taking photos of it. It was hitting Twitter. 
Now, nobody knew what it was, but mm-hmm. this was not in some remote area. This is in the middle of a pretty big city. Right. So very quickly, we knew that we were going to have to say something, A, because of the enormity of the situation, but also because we did not have an interest in bad information getting out. And so if you remember the president, um, there's this, again, weird inside baseball thing where there's the press pool at the White House. They'd already give, been given a lid for that day, which means they get to go home. No more news is coming which we had to do. Mm-hmm. So we called the pool back. And at that point, everyone knew something was up. It was a Sunday night. It was 10 o'clock. This never happens. So people started speculating that it was Qaddafi because that's when we were really involved heavily in, in bombing Libya. People thought, oh, they got Qaddafi. It was amazing that it held so long. And you now remember the famous president's statement where he walks out on that red carpet and, and tells the world what happened. Um, and then oh, we really go to work. The phone did not stop ringing until 6 a.m. Literally, I slept for like an hour maybe. And it is the most intense interest I've ever encountered from reporters all over the world. We ended up putting out more information over the days after that. But it was just, I, I can't, it's hard to describe right now um, how proud I was of the agency and how so many details were were coming were coming out. So... So when you're, I guess when you're fielding these calls after, um, mm-hmm. after the raid, how do you, I mean, how do you manage that? Like how, how do you know, like which ones that you immediately have to respond to, which ones you can kind of wait a while to respond to? And I Reuters guess like, will hate this answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess like, what are you responding by saying? Um, right. So that's why you do all the prep work because mm-hmm. you know, the basics of when did you, the basic questions, everybody had the same basic questions. So at some point we did a background call where we basically opened it up to like every reporter who could get on the call to answer a bunch of mail at the same time. Um, but it's like drinking from a fire hose. I mean that it was, and there were f- three spokespeople at the time, three or f- four, four, four spokespeople um, at the time, three in addition to myself and you just triage. And it's like, I think one of us said, we'll take the TV folks, we'll take the print, we'll take the wires, we'll take radio. And you just um, you just get information out as quickly as you can, but again, very responsibly. And we could anticipate most of the questions, but um, there were things we, did, we couldn't anticipate. Did the Pakistani military scramble their jets? Well, they did. We couldn't plan for that question. We didn't know what they would do. Did you tell the Pakistanis beforehand? No. Um, have they raised it with you yet? So some of it was just playing out in real time. Has he been buried? Where? I mean, they're all, and then if you remember, there was a controversy about the photo of him, whether we were going to release that. That happened a few days later. It was just, it's, you just, you decide, you know, the most important outlets, you deal with them first, but we just kind of dealt with everyone. It's a good story. The agency, um, you don't often get to talk about your successes because most of them are secret. Right. And to be able before the 10th anniversary of 9/11 about, you know, 4 or 5 months to be able to say this was was pretty extraordinary. You're listening to the flagship geopolitics podcast Fly on the Wall and we'll be right back. This week's political fun fact is brought to you from Calvin Coolidge. Uh, so Calvin Coolidge used to press all the buttons on the president's desk and watch his staff um, run in. 
Uh, and then he would pop out from behind the door uh, to see who showed up because he wanted to make sure his staff was just working, um, which is an odd managerial tactic in the first place, um, but also very funny. I, I can just imagine his staff running in and being like, oh, damn. Calvin, Calvin, <laughs> this was really for nothing. I have work to do. And I guess this confirms that none of the buttons on the desk is like the nuclear button because I hate to like accidentally hit that one. I, part of my ignorance are there buttons on the president's desk? Apparently, that was what I thought when I read this. Switching gears a little bit, uh, so you have had uh, you you've had a hand in two, I guess, huge successes. Let's move on to the second, um, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which you were a part of uh, as your involvement uh, in the State Department. Yes. Right. So talk to us a little bit about so, like, Christian and I, and I think our whole team. I'm speaking for a, on behalf of the whole team here. Have no idea how to even start creating an international multilateral agreement. They don't teach us that here. No, they don't. Believe it or not. Uh, so to start, they should. They maybe well, the school funds. Maybe the maybe they're just better than us. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> we'll find out if uh, we can get that confirmed. Uh, but what's like the first step? So the first step, and this was actually a public step, when President Rouhani was elected in Iran, he appointed Javad Zarif foreign minister. They both indicated they were open to having serious dialogue. We hadn't had that up until that point in the Obama administration. So we made a decision when he was elected, when we were all at the United Nations for the UN General Assembly that September, that we were going to convene a foreign minister's meeting and that Secretary Kerry would meet Javad Zarif, the first time foreign ministers had met since the revolution. And that was not a really substantive meeting. It was a we, we released photos and then President Obama and President Rouhani spoke on the phone a few hours later. That was a public strategy to say, this is serious. We're going to take this seriously. Now the hard work begins, right? right? Now, there had been work going on behind the scenes. But it announced to the world that if Iran is open to talking, so are we. And it was an extraordinary moment to see these secretaries of state meeting. I mean, I had never spoken to an Iranian in my life until this. So talk to us about those next steps. You know, what do you what do you do after this first initial contact that says, mm -hmm. hey, maybe we can actually make a deal here? Does Carrie hop on the phone and says, OK, let's make a deal? Uh, sort of. No. Um, well, there, there, look, there had been negotiations going on for many years. They just never went anywhere. And there had been secret talks behind the scenes, which are now public, um, that we had been having to try and set us up to negotiate. But what happened was that was September. Then every few weeks for the next three months, we went to Geneva. All of the members of the P5 plus one, those were our negotiating partners. That's the permanent members of Security Council, Germany, the EU, and Iran. And we hammered out this first step agreement. And a huge part of that was a public piece. So I was in charge of the public pieces of the Iran talks. Press, outreach to interest groups, some of the congressional uh, issues, particularly when we got to the congressional fight. And managing that public piece was really important because the Iranians are really good at shaping their own narrative in their own press and putting out information that would help them and hurt us. <laughs> particularly with Congress. And so a big part of my job was to make sure that while everything was happening behind the scenes, I was managing what was happening publicly. So how long is this process from, from start it's to exhausting. finish? It's yeah. exhausting. It is the most exhausting thing I've ever I, been involved in. I bet it feels wow. longer than like 
It is. So the first three months we got this first step agreement, but even that, I mean, it's so complicated. We had the press conference announcing this at 5 a.m. We'd been up for like three days. We hadn't slept and we slept like an hour. Um, this is exhausting. And so then we went into basically two years, almost two years of negotiations where, I mean, if you followed the press coverage, you know, the last two rounds, the one that ended in April of 2015 in Switzerland and the one that ended in July of 2015 in Vienna, they are marathon rounds. I mean, these were the most number of days Secretary of State had ever been negotiating anything uh, consecutively. And so, you know, John Kerry, who is like the Energizer Bunny and doesn't sleep ever, I'm convinced. He has much more energy than we do. Um, would You know, he'd, he'd have these marathon negotiating sessions where he'd come out of the room and like, or I'd pass him a note and say, this is what's happening online, or we need to respond to this. This congressman is saying this. And he'd take it back in the negotiating room and raise it. Or I'd have to go on TV and say, this New York Times report is complete crap, which I had to do a number of times because <laughs> um, they had some not very good sources. Um, so it was like a a marathon where you didn't sleep and everyone, it, it was just, I ate more room service than I ever wanted to eat in my life. Um, <laughs> and John Kerry doesn't time, drink coffee. No? Which is shocking. Insane. Insane. That's what I would use. I respect that. Um, but, you know, there are a few moments in your life when you get to work with a team that is full of extraordinarily bright people who are dedicated to doing something very good for the world. And like watching these people and we all went through it together and, you know, people miss their kids' birthdays. And I spent two fourths of, fourths of July in Vienna. Mm. Um, we spent Thanksgivings and Christmases. and it, it, it was so complicated and we felt like we had such a moment to try this that, you know, John, John Kerry would say to us, not infrequently, you know, I saw war. I saw, and he firmly believed if we couldn't get a negotiated agreement, we would be going to war. And at some point, and he was going to do everything in his power to prevent that. And the last trip I did with him was to Vietnam, back to Vietnam in January of this year. And it's like, you can see he's someone who knows what happens when diplomacy fails and was incredibly committed to seeing if we could succeed here. So what carried this deal across the finish line? The Iranian government um, knew they had to get economic relief. We had put sanctions on them that had crippled their economy. And this Iranian president ran on a platform of getting economic relief. And people think Iran doesn't have politics. Iran has politics. It actually matters. Now, is it perfect? No. But they have elections. They run on platforms. They, their people have impact. So they needed economic relief, and they knew the only way they were going to do that was to get a negotiated agreement. And I, I truly think that Ernie Moniz, who was our Secretary of Energy, right. and the Iranian head nuclear scientist, who also went to MIT, as Ernie Moniz did, they were able, and they had enough negotiating power to, to put the politics aside and look at the technology, right? Like nuclear physicists who look at this deal believe it does what we say it does. Opponents of it don't like other things. They don't like that it doesn't include terrorism. They don't like that it doesn't include human rights There are ballistic missiles. In the four corners of the nuclear agreement, there were people willing on both sides to take political risks, to take political heat back home, as the Iranians did and as we did, because they believed that the alternative to solving this diplomatically was conflict of one kind or another. And none of us wanted that 
to be the option. I truly think the stakes were that high, and that's what kept pushing at 4 a.m. when you hadn't slept, Carrie and Zarif back to the table, working through numbers of centrifuges. I truly believe that was what was driving people. So after you finish this deal, you still have to come back to and sell it to the American public. Yes. So talk to us about how... The fun part. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Oddly enough, the easiest part of an Iranian nuclear deal, maybe. I don't know. Maybe the yes. hardest. So talk to us about it. So we set up what we called the anti-war room, like the war room, <laughs> yeah. but the anti-war room in the White House, in the basement, this windowless office. And I sat there and I ran the press component. And my colleague, Chad Krakemeyer, who was a White House legislative official, ran the ledge side. And we had these huge whiteboards with every Democratic member listed. The Republicans had made clear they had they didn't want anything to do with this. They would never consider voting for it. Even some of them, though, thought it was a good deal. So we literally spent, and this was over the summer, so it was July and August, every minute of every day working every single Democratic member based on the facts. And so for us, we wanted to take the politics out of it. Um, we wanted to say, so Ernie Moniz went, you know, we talked to every Democratic member. We brought them to the White House. We sent people out to their districts during August recess when everyone went home and we were very worried they would hear a lot of grief. We were so targeted in our media blitz that Ernie Moniz <laughs> called into Heidi Heitkamp, who's from North Dakota. She was a key swing member. Her brother has a radio show. So Ernie Moniz called into her brother's radio show. Like That's how targeted we were in local media, in regional media, in, in trying to get the facts out about this. And it was an all-out blitz. And we needed, basically, to hold enough Democrats that we could, they could not override a veto if Congress actually did pass something. And we needed 34, and we ended up getting 42. Wow. Which was like nobody thought we would do. Some of us really did the whole time. Um, but I really think that speaks to, I think there's no issue on foreign policy that the administration I worked for spent more time or effort on with Congress than this. Barack Obama was personally involved with many members. Um, John Kerry, Ernie Moniz, every, it was all hands on deck. We blanketed media. We, 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 ha we had you know members in one-on-one -on -one for hours to answer literally any question they had because we really did fundamentally believe in the science behind the deal. And it was, it, I mean, it was like a campaign. And a lot of members took difficult votes, um, but did so because they believed in it. Well, that is a, an inspiring tale as to how to successfully do diplomacy, which, right. again, Christian, I have absolutely no perspective on. So it's helpful to, <laughs> helpful to learn a little bit about the process. But do, a lot of the skills that work in diplomacy are work in politics, too. I mean, in some ways, that's why John Kerry was such a good, sec I would argue, Secretary of State, or someone like Colin Powell, even though he's not as political. John Kerry fundamentally believes in a personal diplomacy, that if I sit down with you, we can find common ground enough. It's not about me giving things up. It's about me understanding what you need and finding the solution, whatever that is. So I have my needs, you have your needs. That's in some ways what politics is like yeah. too. And so I think the best secretaries of state have understood that. And some like we see right now aren't, aren't really as... as into that maybe sure. I would say politely or diplomatically you're listening to fly on the wall we'll be right back
This week's Politicos as Real People comes to us from the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, who offered to take a picture of a group of attendees at the Capitol tree lighting. Um, so this picture is actually on uh, Secretary Perdue's Twitter, which is pretty funny. It's a picture of him taking a picture of just a couple, like, it looks like staffers, I assume, at the Capitol Hill tree lighting. Um, so there you go. Everyone's just a passerby waiting to take a picture. Isn't, like, the bright spot of your childhood eating Purdue chicken nuggets? Yes, absolutely. That's how I know the dude. Christian, wouldn't you agree that Purdue chicken nuggets are just the best? Every night before soccer practice. The best kinds of chicken nuggets? Yep, they're pretty great. So a great part about our podcast, uh, we have two final segments before we let you go. Uh, our, the first is what we call a hot take. So we invite a student. This time we chose Belva Chandra, who is in the School of Foreign Service. So great. perhaps gets uh, a kindred spirit. International <laughs> affairs a little bit better than we do. Uh, we ask her a question. So what we're going to do is we're going to say the question. We're going to play Belva's hot take. And we'd like you to respond to her. Okay. Um, and just sort of give us your thoughts. Uh, so the question we asked Belva was regarding our tensions with North Korea. And considering our method of dealing with Iran, uh, the Iranian nuclear situation, do you think a more aggressive policy or one of appeasement is more effective in properly mitigating that crisis? Those are our two options, appeasement or aggression. Well, let's see what she said. So in foreign policy, nothing happens in isolation. Regarding our tensions with North Korea and our issue with Iran, I think it's very hard to apply a one-size-fits-all approach to both countries. I do think that we were successful in terms of our Iran nuclear deal simply because Iran was able to abide by IAEA regulations. And even though it has tried to skirt past that, if the U.S. is committed to Iran and committed to abiding by this deal, then there is room for success in the future. On the other hand, with North Korea, we don't have the same situation there. We don't have that past that we have with Iran. And I feel like, yes, I do think a more aggressive policy will be more worthwhile with North Korea. What that policy looks like is difficult to say. What are your thoughts on uh, on Bilva's hot take? So she's right that they're different uh, situations. Um, definitely. For me, the biggest difference, and she didn't allude to this as much as maybe I would have liked her to, is that North Korea already has nuclear weapons. Hmm. So when you're negotiating with a country who doesn't, that, that's the other reason we thought this was such an important time to try and get a deal. Once they have nuclear weapons, a lot of the leverage is gone. Different ballgame. Yeah. Totally different ballgame. Now, the, she's right about the fact that the history of the U.S. and Iran is so laden with emotion, understandably so, on both sides, that that made it harder. Um, but North Korea also is, too. I mean, people forget about the Korean War, but um, there's also a lot of historical baggage there as well. What Iran tells me for North Korea is this is why you do deals like the Iran deal. It may not be perfect, but right now they can't get a nuclear weapon unless they cheat, and we'll know if they cheat, because once you get one... The ball game is very, very, very different. And the last thing she said that this might take more aggressive action, you know, because of the difference may ultimately end up being being what happens. It's a, it's a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale, yeah. It's a grim outlook. <laughs> North Korea is grim. I mean, I'm never at all uplifted when I'm talking about it. Oh, man. Great. A lot of positivity. Good I know. <laughs> Are you ending on a better note? Uh, no, we're not. <laughs> uh, so, um, so on that note, uh, the next section we have for you, our last section, is our lightning round. Uh, so we're going to ask you a couple of questions and just give us uh, 
a quick, short right. answer right off the top of your head. Uh, so our first question is related to the last one, um, and it's which country is most likely to nuke us first, North Korea, China, or Russia? North Korea. North Korea. Great. I tend to agree. I think China's a spicy hot take, though. Mm. I mean, well, and Russia is... They're feeling their they're feeling their power right That's now. That's true. We're, we're friendly right now. Um, so the next question, I literally just got an AP alert about it, so I wanted to test. Uh, I want to hear what you have to say. Does Tillerson survive the calendar year of two thousand seventeen? Yes, but not two thousand eighteen. Mm, I can see that. Yeah, he hates the job. Not I, happy. I I feel um, like it's quite a difficult job. I wouldn't like it. Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> yes, but if you had it, you would try to do a good job. Probably, yeah. I would say give so. it an effort, a little bit. Uh, our next question for you is, what's going to be the biggest foreign policy crisis in 10 years? North Korea is going to continue to be a problem. Um, I, I think that s sort of radical extremism will continue, but, um, you know, will continue as sort of a one-off one -off threats. I also, honestly, I'm going to sound very liberal. I think that the changing climate in this planet is going to be an increasing national security issue. There's going to be increasing competition over resources. Right. Um, countries are going to disappear. I would agree. That would be my answer, too. If you yes. But people will say I'm very, very liberal. <laughs> but I truly believe it. Yeah, for sure. Told you we weren't ending on a high note. <laughs> the world's going to overheat, and we're all going to get nuked. Yep. Well... <laughs> Maybe happy we holidays, everyone. <laughs> we can squeeze in a one last happy note. So last question. Going forward, what would be, other than what you've accomplished so far, what would be your dream job? A college football analyst on ESPN. I love that. What's cool? Ohio State Buckeyes. Oh, oh are you a Michigan Wolverine? Uh, my dad went to uh -oh. the University of Michigan. Oh, my I am God. a loyal, so I don't have much of a leg to stand on. We None. Great, we don't have a quarterback to stand were you, on. Were you alive the last time you beat us? Uh, 2011? 2012? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I would also remind, point you to history, excuse me. We have a uh, still holding on to our slim lead in the all-time. It's the greatest uh, rivalry in sports. It is. It's a great game. Hey, if we had maybe a quarterback who could stand on two feet, we'd uh, we'd stand a chance next oh, year. So. Wow. Well, um, you know, it is, uh, there's nothing like college football. Every Saturday, no matter what's happening in the world, I have watched Ohio State games on my computer in many countries around the world. I, I he can tell you we're roommates. I, I do the exact same. I'm in front of the TV every the weekend, and, every weekend. And he's always yelling at the TV as well. Uh, well, Michigan deserves that a little bit. They, no, <laughs> he's kicking the butt. You have to, you have to be <laughs> honest with your friends. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being on the uh, the pod. Now, now I feel like we left off on a sour note. Now, now I'm just really upset. <laughs> I really? feel great. Wait, okay. So nuclear war you were fine with, but Michigan being a oh, bad football man. team is ending on a bad note. My, brought up all my insecurities. But this is game. somewhat, in all honesty, though, someone wrote this really good article after 9-11 and they said and it was about the Buckeyes but you could apply like the world felt like it changed everything felt horrible but every Saturday I knew where my friends were going to be my family there were some constants in life that made you feel like there was something to be happy about the Buckeyes were still winning we know we always win we about. <laughs> the world doesn't That's stop consistent. <laughs> the world will stop when the Buckeyes stop thank winning. you all for having me on <laughs> thanks for being on Marie. Thank appreciate you. it you're listening to fly in the wall we'll be right back
Thanks so much for listening to this interview with Marie Harf and for this episode of Fly on the Wall. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation with Marie. Uh, she's like way smarter than me about like everything, um, especially international affairs, something I oddly enough don't get enough at Georgetown. Um, and so it was really cool learning about how they actually do things there. I think some of the stories that she can shed light on are just fascinating about how the depths of statecraft uh, and negotiations really come to fruition. And again, I, I, I've been harping on this all episode, but just her ability to communicate it so clearly and so vividly um, and so comfortingly, except for a little bit at the end there, uh, is it, it speaks volumes to um, such a skilled practitioner of the communications arts to be able to to do that for such complex topics. Yeah, we were really excited to have her on. That completes our fellows for the year. We got all of the five G apologies. Five for five. Five yeah. for five. Six for six, Jose. That's right. I apologize. Six for six, which is even more exciting. Um, we have one more episode coming next week, which is exciting slash sad because it means we're done for season two. Um, but again, we're just going to give one big thank you to all of our loyal listeners throughout the season, throughout two seasons at this point. Um, and make one quick announcement before we move into season three. We have a season two review form, which has gone out on social media the last couple of days. We'll continue to throughout this weekend and into next week. We want to hear any and all thoughts you have on the content we put out, the way we produce it, um, our brand, anything and everything that you have so that we can put in the hard work necessary to build just a better podcast overall for y'all starting in season three. That's all from us. See you next week. that Thomas Jefferson and James Adams both, both died, died on, on the 4th of July? Both died within hours of each other. Thomas because they had a bet. John Adams' last words were Jefferson survives, which is true. Because no one cared about John Adams until HBO made a special miniseries about him. With the dude from uh, the second president name? of the United What's he States. In? What was his name? Nobody cared about him. It was the guy um, who was also in... in um, what? Oh, it's uh, Marty Wolf from Big Fat Live. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> he was also in um, well, like Billions. Isn't like a random show, Billions? I just know it was Marty Wolf. Um, was it also Uncle Ian from... No, from, that's not the same one. From the Alvin of the Chipmunks? Really? Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. my God. Marty? It's it's Paul Gia something. It's Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti? Yeah, I think that's right. Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Can we watch Big Fat Liar tonight?